Hello, this is Caleb Farley with the Lawrence County Public Library. It is June 7th, 2021, and this is the seventh episode of the Lawrence County Public Library Genealogy Podcast. Uh, this episode is going to be kind of a follow-up to the previous one. Uh, I did it on a steamboat captain that lived here in Lawrence County named Milton Freeze. This episode is going to run a little bit longer than usual. Um, I've got a lot of stuff in it that I'm going to cover. Uh, we have an interview with a local author. Uh, I've got some stories about the river, uh, some information about the bridge, uh, information about the dam here in Louisa, a little bit of everything. Uh, it was really fun researching this one. And as always, if anybody listening has a certain topic they would like me to cover in an episode, feel free to shoot me an email. Uh, my email is Caleb, C-A-L-E-B, at lcplky.org, or give us a call here at the library, 606-638-4497. Uh, just to plug it, we also have a library Facebook page for the library itself and for the genealogy page. All you have to do is look for Lawrence County Public Library or Lawrence County Public Library Genealogy. The interview I did for this episode was with Jack Dickinson. He is a local historical author out of uh, Huntington, West Virginia. Jack wrote a book with his wife, Kay Stamper Dickinson, in 2019 called River of Sandbars, and it is about the steamboats and their captains and pilots uh, on the Big Sandy River. The book has a lot of really good information in it, and uh, if you're interested in reading it, we actually have a copy here in the library for you to check out. Just a little bit of an update about what's going on here at the library. Uh, we are open to the public now, uh, regular hours, 9 to 5. Um, our summer feeding and our summer reading programs have also started. With summer reading, uh, we have programming going on in the library every day of the week. I've also started some of my adult programming. Summer feeding, uh, children's ages 18 and under are able to stop by the library daily uh, through the summer from 12 p.m. until 1.30 p.m. and pick up a hot meal. Uh, the meals are prepared by Dee's Drive-In and we have a menu up on our website so you know what we're going to have that day. Um, it's open for anybody that is 18 and under. Um, parents can come by and pick up meals for their kids if the kids aren't going to come into the library. Um, and they've changed the restrictions this year so you don't have to eat it on site. You're able to take the meals home. Some of my programming, um, Tech Tuesday is now Tech Thursday, and it's a little bit different. I'm going live on Facebook, and I'm showing off some, usually some free software or a website that you can use, and I'll answer any questions that people put in the uh, chat attached to the live video. Uh, this week on Wednesday, I'm actually doing a Dungeons and Dragons for Beginners program. Um, I've been playing Dungeons and Dragons for about a year now, and I really enjoy it. Um, I've got some friends that play it with me that we all really enjoy it. Uh, I would love to start it as a library program. Um, the thing with that, you kind of need consistency with who is involved in it. So I'm just doing a couple uh, intro kind of beginner programs this month showing you you know, this is what you need to play the game. These are some basic rules in the game. Uh, you won't actually be playing the game while I'm doing the program. It's just kind of showing you what you do. Uh, this is trying to build up interest and see who would be interested in doing an actual game here at the library. 
uh, hopefully as a program that would meet up, you know, every couple weeks or once a month or so. I'm also doing a monthly genealogy program uh, the first Friday of every month, and each one will be on a different topic. Um, I had one scheduled for the beginning of this month that was kind of an overview of what we have access to here at the library, um, some of the different materials that we have in our collection, stuff we have available online. Um, I'm thinking I'll do that one again next month. Uh, we didn't really have a big turnout for the first one, so I think I might do a repeat of it and get hopefully get the word out for it a little bit more. I'm also going to be doing something I've wanted to do for a while now. Uh, every other Monday, starting uh, this coming Monday, June 14th, I'm doing cult movie classics. Uh, Dina has started doing kids' movies throughout the week, so I figured I might as well do something for the parents. Uh, the first one I'm showing is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, it starts 10 o'clock on Monday morning. Uh, if, if it's popular, I'll do another one. Or if it would be better for me to do one in the afternoon, I can change the time from 10 until sometime in the afternoon. Our programming calendar is pretty packed for the summer. Uh, between summer reading, summer feeding, and we have programs going on in the library every day of the week, sometimes multiple programs going on. Uh, it's pretty busy. Um, we have programming calendars on our website uh, and we have them posted to our Facebook page. I also try to do a daily post saying what meal we have for summer feeding and what programming is going on in the library. And if it's going to be like a special program, I'll announce it in advance too. That's pretty much all I have to cover for, you know, just a general update. So. Let's go ahead and get started with today's episode. Louise is located at the meeting point of the Tug Fork and Lavaza Fork into the Big Sandy River. The Lavaza Fork is about 164 miles long, starting in the Appalachian Mountains in Virginia, Grundy and Buchanan County to be specific. Going west, the Lavaza Fork flows through Pike County, Kentucky, where it fills the Fish Trap Lake Reservoir. After this, it collects with the Russell Fork, flowing northwest through Pikeville and Prestonsburg. In Paintsville, the river turns to the north-northwest, flowing through Johnson and Lawrence counties, where it joins the Tug Fork from the southwest at Louisa on the West Virginia state line, forming the Big Sandy River. Historically, the fork was an important log-driving river, and you can partially navigate it for commercial purposes through a series of locks. At one point in the early 1900s, it was navigable as far as Pikeville. There's a dam located in the river alongside Louisa. It is a needle dam, completed in 1896, and it was the first needle dam in the United States. The dam maintains the level or flow of a river by using thin needles of wood. The needles are leaned against a frame, and it's not watertight, so water is still able to flow through it, just not as heavily. More needles, less water flow. Needles can be added or removed by hand to constrict the flow of water, forming a sluice. The following article comes from the Big Sandy News on December 17, 1986 in the Down Home column by Lucille Sparks. It's the legend of Louisa Lavaza River. The Louisa River was named by Dr. Thomas Walker on Thursday, the 7th day of June, 1750. The entry in Dr. Walker's journal describing this event is as follows. June 7, the creek being fordable, we crossed it and kept down 12 miles to a river about 100 yards over, which we call the Louisa River. The creek is about 30 yards wide and part of the river breaks into the creek, making an island on which we camped. 
In early days of the settlement of the Big Sandy Valley, this stream was known altogether as the Louisa River. As late as 1852, it was generally called the Louisa River. After that time, and to some extent before, the name began to be corrupted to that of Leviza. The name Leviza is now used almost entirely. That name is a corruption of the true name Louisa, there is no doubt. It appears that the name Louisa once attached to the whole state of Kentucky, but the extent of the application of this name is not known. There is reason to believe that as early as 1775, the name Louisa was corrupted to Leviza. Speed, in the Wilderness Road, says that Felix Walker, with Captain Tweddy and six others, left Rutherford, North Carolina in February 1775, according to Felix Walker's narrative, to explore the country of Leauvise, now Kentucky. But the U was formerly written V, and it may have been so in this word Leauvise. In that case, it would be Leauvise, an erroneous spelling of Louisa. This is a note from me, Caleb. Um, the Leo Visse is spelled L-E-O-W-V-I-S-A-Y. The Kentucky River was sometimes called the Louisa River by the pioneers and explorers, and it was called also the Cherokee River. In the deed from the Cherokees to Richard Henderson and others, proprietors of the Transylvania Company, conveying the tract of land known as the Great Grant, we find the description of the land beginning as follows. All that tract, territory, or parcel of land situated, lying, and being in North America on the Ohio River, one of the eastern branches of the Mississippi River, beginning on the said Ohio, at the mouth of Kentucky, Cherokee, or what by the English is called Louisa River. The calling of the Kentucky River by the name Louisa was caused by misapprehension. It was not certainly known what river had been called Louisa by Dr. Walker, as he traced none of the rivers which he named to the Ohio. But that he did not call the Kentucky River Louisa is shown by Lewis Evans' map, 1775, on which the Louisa River is marked as flowing into the Great Kanawha, and the upper course of the Tottery or Big Sandy Sea is marked Frederick R. Frederick's River is discovered and named by Dr. Walker on the 2nd of June, 1750, five days before he discovered and named the Louisa River, and it is now known that the Louisa River does not flow into the Great Kanawha. It flows that the west branch of the Big Sandy River was the stream upon Dr. Walker bestowed the name Louisa. Reverend Zephaniah Meek wrote from Catlinsburg, Kentucky, November 19, 1895, as follows. I called on Captain Owens yesterday, formerly of Pike County, and asked him the origin of the name Leviza as applied to the West Fork of the Big Sandy. He says that the early settlement of this part of the state, a French trader by the name of Leviza, came to what is known as Louisa, and owing to some experiences of his, that fork came to be called after his name, hence Americanized Leviza. There may have been a French trader at the forks of the Big Sandy River by the name of Leviza, but the word of Captain Owens is all I have found of that fact. If there was such a trader, he was not a prominent enough to change the name of a river or to have his name attached to it. The I in French is E in English. Anglicized, the Frenchman's name would have been Levise or Levesi. Leviza could not possibly have come from it. The explanation of Captain Owens is a very improbable one. John P. Hale, in his Trans-Allegheny Pioneer, says, the Leviza, or Leviza, fork is said to mean the picture, design, or representation. 
It was so called by an early French explorer in that region from Indian pictures or signs painted on trees near the head of the stream. These painted trees were found to be in early times all along the Louisa River from the mouth of the Big Paint Creek, where they were most numerous, to its head. Christopher Gist was on the Pound River in 1751. The entry in his journal for Wednesday, April 3rd, is as follows. To a small creek on which was a large warrior's camp that would contain 70 or 80 warriors. Their captain's name or title was the Crane, as I knew by his picture or arms painted on a tree. Darlington says, this was on the stream called Indian Creek, the middle fork of the Big Sandy in Wise County. The crane was a totem or badge of one of the Miami tribes, also of the Wyandots. A common practice among the Indian tribes, with war parties at a distance from their home, was to paint on trees or rocks a figure of warriors, prisoners, animals, etc., as intelligible to other Indians as a printed handbill among the whites. Darlington is in error when he says there was totem of the crane among the Wyandots, but they had a chief named Tarhe, or the crane, who was old enough in 1751 to have led a hunting party, or even a war party into the wilderness. He became head chief of the Wyandots of the death of the half-king. It might be possible that these early paintings suggested to some of the early explorers and hunters some such name for this stream as Device Fork or Device River or Devices Fork or Devices River, and that such name or names finally assumed the form of Leviza Fork. There is only suggested as remotely possible origin of the name Leviza. This is only suggested as remotely possible origin of the name Leviza. It is far-fetched. There is no probability at all that such is the origin of the name. That Leviza is a corruption of Louisa may be accepted as beyond dispute or question. Dr. Walker gave this river the name Louisa in honor of Louisa, the wife of the Duke of Cumberland, it is said. Louisa is a good old English name coming down from a more ancient people. It is a name of much beauty, and it was in great favor with our ancestors. It should be restored to the river to which Dr. Walker gave it. The Louisa Fork should be called the Louisa River. The Tug Fork should be called the Tug River. The river formed at their junction should be called the Big Sandy River. This was by Lucille Sparks. K. Stamper Dickinson and Jack L. Dickinson published River of Sandbars, Boats on the Big Sandy River and Their Captains and Pilots in 2018. It contains 286 pages of research detailing the history and sometimes autobiographic stories of the captains and pilots of boats on the Big Sandy River, dating all the way back to 1674 when Gabriel Arthur crossed the mouth of the Big Sandy. The first group to travel by boat to the Big Sandy was a group assembled by John Peter Sally in 1742 with John and Josiah Howard. Dr. Thomas Walker and his group entered Kentucky through the Cumberland Gap in 1750, going down the Middle Waters and onto the Big Sandy. Dr. Walker is credited with naming the river the Louisa River, later known as the Leviza River by the 1820s. From 1767 to 1770, George Washington explored and surveyed the Big Sandy Valley. He surveyed a tract of 284 acres for John Fry, located on both sides of the Big Sandy River at its forks. This is where Louisa sits today. Washington was mostly on the lower part of the river, while famed explorer Daniel Boone, with William Hill, hunted and explored the upper reaches of the river. 
Over time, the river became used as a transport route for trade. Towns started to pop up along the river, which is why you see most of the larger towns in eastern Kentucky located next to a water source. Prestonsburg and Floyd County, Callisburg and Boyd County, although it was Greenup County when it was first established, and Louisa here in Lawrence County. Charles Vancouver and ten other people established a settlement in 1789 at the junction of the Tug and Big Sandy Rivers across from Louisa on the Virginia, now West Virginia, side of the river. One settlement that came from this was known as Cassville, later to be known as Fort Gay in Wayne County. There were a lot of different types of boats used on the river, and some of the earliest were known as pirogues. Um, this is a term you still hear uh, further down south. They were long and narrow, dug out from a tree trunk, and these are the kinds of boats that Lewis and Clark used in their expedition. Another boat from around the same time was the bateau, French for boat. It was a flat-bottomed boat pointed at both ends, and just like the pirogue, some places in the southern United States still use this term for flat boats, but around here we just call them John boats. The logging industry had their own type of boat, but it was only one way. Tree trunks would be lashed together to form rafts, with the people transporting the trees riding on it like a raft. Another type of boat was the flat boat which was a large rectangular boat with square ends that transported goods and passengers. These were typically pushed by people on the boat using long wooden poles. Uh, both of these boats were mostly one way as once they got to their destination um, they would either be unlashed or taken apart and uh, the wood would be, be used for lumber. Kill boats were large water barges controlled by oars or poles and sometimes sails and typically carried 15 to 20 tons with a crew of 8 to 10. Kill boats typically traveled both directions of the river while, like I said, flatboats were often used one way. The term push boat was used to describe kill boats and flatboats, but there was a type of boat just called the push boat. It's kind of confusing. They required less than a foot of draft and were made of poplar logs held together and were about 70 feet long and 7 feet wide. The people manning the push boat would go to the front of the boat and walk their way towards the back of the boat, pushing the boat with long wooden poles along the way. Uh, they often used um, songs to keep rhythm with this, to keep them going as fast as possible. One push boat that operated out of Louisa was the Sunshine, captained by a man by the last name Music, running from Louisa at the point to Paintsville to Pikeville. The early 1800s brought on the steamboat, and on May 20, 1837, the first steamboat went up to the Big Sandy from Catlisburg. In 1843, Alan Hatton, son of Samuel Hatton Jr. and Nancy Campbell, piloted the first steamboat called the Joseph F. Hatton to go above Louisa on the Big Sandy River up to Pikeville. There's a photograph album in the back of the book with photographs provided by the Marshall University Special Collections Department. Photos of local interest are the construction of a dam on the Lavaza Fork at Torchlight in Lawrence County, Kentucky. There's also a panoramic view of Louisa from 1914 and what's believed to be the Louisa Wharf boat. The back of the book also contains an index to help when you're researching and need to look something up from the book. Today, we are joined with Jack Dickinson. He is a local historical author out of Huntington, West Virginia. Uh, today is Monday, June 7th, 2021. 
At this time of the recording, the audio quality dropped for some reason. And despite my best efforts at cleaning up, uh, you really couldn't understand what was being discussed. I introduced Jack, saying that he and his wife, Kay uh, Stamper Dickinson, are the authors of Murder Along the Tracks, Violent Deaths Along the Norfolk and Western in Wayne and Mingo Counties, West Virginia, Wheels of Flame, Whistle Wide Open, Train Wrecks of the NNW Railroad, Better Take Two Guns, the NNW's Special Agents and Their West Virginia Cases, multiple other books, and the one we discussed, River of Sandbars, Boats on the Big Sandy River, and Their Captains and Pilots. Glad to have you on here. Uh, I saw you speak a couple years ago in Paintsville at a genealogy conference uh, right. when your book first came out. Yeah. Uh, you care, do you care to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, be glad to. Thanks, Caleb, and thanks for inviting me to your podcast. No, of uh, course. I grew up in uh, Mingo County, just across the uh, Tug Fork of the Big Sandy, so I feel like that's kind of in the neighborhood. My <laughs> wife grew up in Wayne County, and uh, we met at Crum High School in Wayne County and both graduated from there in 1961, so... Your, re, your listeners can figure out how old we are. Uh, we, we were married in 1964, and we've been together ever since. And uh, uh, we, we have uh, three grown sons. Uh, two of them are doctors, and one is an artist, and we have uh, four grandchildren. So uh, what more uh, can I tell you about that? What did you go to school for, stuff like that, if you want to talk about that? Well, I graduated from Marshall uh, with a teacher's college degree, but uh, never taught a day. Uh, mm -hmm. I spent uh, 27 years with the IBM company mm -hmm. um, in this area out of the Huntington office, mainly uh, writing uh, applications and software for customers. This is before the days of the PC. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I uh, I graduated from Moorhead with a history teacher's uh, history education degree, and I've not taught a day either, other than substitute teaching. <laughs> yeah, my my parents were both career teachers in uh, mm -hmm. Mingo and Wayne County in West Virginia, and so it was kind of natural that I would end up with a teacher's college degree. Oh yeah. Uh, what started your interest in local history? Sure, I think like a lot of people and a lot of your listeners. Uh, you kind of start out being interested in your genealogy and uh, tracing your ancestors. And uh, uh, I especially became interested in mine that fought in the Civil War. Uh, I have a, uh, a Revolutionary War ancestor, and uh, so does my wife. And so we both kind of were interested in our genealogy and spent a few years just uh, working on that. And uh, we found out we had a lot in common, uh, both. We both had grandfathers that were in the lumbering and timbering business. and uh, But uh, it started out with my wife wanting to do a just a little magazine article for the old Dunlow Railroad Station that's over at Dunlow in Wayne County. It's still there. It was built in 1891. And that kind of led us into the first book, and then that led to four more. <laughs> And so we did a five-book set on what we call the railroad history of southern West Virginia. And uh, the couple you mentioned there, the murder along the tracks and the better take two guns are two of those there. My wife has an, had an uncle who was a NNW Railroad Special Agent, and that prompted us to research that, and that turned into the two guns book. And that's kind of how things evolved. Oh, I've got some great stories come out of that. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, uh, let me tell you, the railroad life in in uh, the West Virginia side of the river, which was the N&W, and of course on your side of the river, it was the CNO. But the early years, around the turn of the 20th century, uh, it was, uh, uh, I mean, it didn't look like Wild West, but there was Wild West incidents of well, I believe uh, shooting, murder, fights, and all kinds of stuff that I, I think a lot of people are interested in. Mm-hmm, definitely. Uh, I know we have, I think, four or five of your all's books in our collection I, I, yeah, my uh, wife available, for, available for checkout. Do I, I knew I knew you had some of them other mm-hmm. than the other than the, uh, the River of Sandbars book, but I couldn't remember how many. Oh yeah, yeah. It, it always seems like at least one or two of them are checked out, so they're they're fairly popular around here. <laughs> right, good to yeah. hear. Um, so the last book that you put out, the River of Sandbars, uh, it's you know boats on the Big Sandy River, which you know goes right next to along Louisa, and they're captains and pilots. What got you interested in that topic? Well, once again, it's kind of that where you get led off in the tall grass, and it ends up to be a better story than uh, what you were originally on the road for. Right. One of the last books we did on the West Virginia side of the Big Sandy and the Tug Fork, uh, we decided to do a book on lumbering and timbering because, as I said before, our both our grandfathers have been involved in that and been in the lumbering and timbering back in the early 20th century, and what we found out was so interesting was how they got logs to the river, and what they did was they made log rye, and this is all the way up the Big Sandy, the Tug Fork, and the Levisa Fork. They would build log rafts and float them down to Catlisburg, and, uh, of course, that was an adventure in itself, and you could only do when the water was up fairly mm-hmm. high, but uh, once the log rafts got to Catlitzburg, there was a little fleet of, of small steamboats, tugboats, whatever you want to call them, that maneuvered the log rafts around and then took them out in the Ohio River. And there was a uh, there was one big uh, sawmill operation at South Point, but the really big ones were at Cincinnati. And these little boats were something else. And my wife really got interested in those boats, and she started finding them and some of their captains. And then she started finding boats that had nothing to do with the log rafts, but they were really interesting that operated around the Catlisburg area. And our files started to get bigger, and I told her, I said, this is another book entirely. <laughs> so that's kind of how we ended up into that. And uh, my wife gets the credit in the Sandbars book for the captains. That's really the part she liked was researching them and their families. And I know you're uh, – your old buddy, uh, Captain Milton Freeze, that I, yep. I understand you did a podcast about him. He was one of the very most interesting boat captains on the river, no question about it. Yeah, um, I read through his obituary, and he had a very interesting life. <laughs> well, I, the thing I found interesting was during the Civil War, he had that store at where, Prestonsburg? Or, mm-hmm. Yeah, at Prestonsburg. He had a... It sounded more like a store and an outpost uh, mm-hmm. uh, anyway, but uh, that that's kind of how we got into the steamboats and their captains. Uh, the logging book uh, on lumbering and timbering in the West Virginia side came out in 2016, and as soon as that came out, then we were really into it on working on the uh, big sandy boat. Mm-hmm. So 
how do you go about researching stuff like this? Because you said your wife worked on the, mostly the captains. Well, uh, uh, prior, prior to that book, uh, and even prior to the West Virginia books, I had done about 14 books on the Civil War in this area. Mm-hmm. And so we had been to the National Archives. We had been to uh, several of the state archives, places like that. Uh, and the, basically what we did was we started at Ashland at the Boyd County Library doing research there. <laughs> and then from there we moved to Catlitzburg where we did the uh, went through the courthouse looking for records and that kind of thing. <laughs> and then from there we moved down to Louisa. And let me put in a plug for your library, which is really great and fantastic, and we've always enjoyed working there. Uh, the big thing your library had that brought us back more than once was you're the nearest place that has the, the Big Sandy News on microfilm. Mm-hmm. And that's a great research tool. Yeah. And, and just uh, to let our listeners know, the Big Sandy News on microfilm, we have that from 1885 when the newspaper started up through, I believe, 2008, but we have hard copies for everything else. And I've actually recently finished indexing all of the obituaries in the Big Sandy newspapers up to date. Oh, outstanding. Yes, that's a great great research. Yeah, we we already had part of it up through, I think, the 2008 um, done, but I went back and I started getting the hard copies and pulling out every obituary page and making note of the information in that and it's other than the issues that are missing it is complete oh excellent that, that's a yeah. it's a great research tool and we spent a lot of time there i think that's where we met you as i recall we mm-hmm. met on yeah. one of the trips and so what we did in louisa was we went to your library and we went through that courthouse then we moved up river and did prestonsburg Tanksville, Prestonsburg, and Pikeville, the same thing. We went to the library and then the courthouse mm-hmm. and each one of those and gathered records. And uh, then we found some other sources that uh, weren't immediately in the big Sandy Valley, but, for instance, the Western Kentucky University at Bowling Green has a file of uh, a, a large file of steamboat pictures, <laughs> which uh, we were able to uh, uh pay them a fee, of course, and use those in the book. The other Mm -hmm. thing they had was around the turn of the 20th century, when the locks were being built on the Big Sandy, the Corps of Engineers kept logs of the boats that passed through. They kept records of the boats Mm -hmm. that passed through the locks, and that's a great tool because when you're in doubts doubts about things, uh, you can... You can actually tell this boat was actually here on this date, passing right. through this lock. Yeah, and you could, you could probably use that to track down like how far along the river they traveled too. Yeah, well, that's a little more difficult, but yes. And so that was another source. Uh, and another source we found was a magazine that was published back in the early 20th century, up through the 1950s. I think called the S and D Reflector. The mm-hmm. S and D was the sons and daughters of the Rivermen, and oh, it's, wow. just a, it's just a great source. And mm-hmm. one of the things we found in that was the diaries of one of our boat captains named Jesse Hughes. And Jesse Hughes, his boat was the Cricket, 
and it was a small spurn wheeled steamboat. And uh, in the early 20th century, about let's say 1901 to about 1905, is when he spent a lot of his time up and down the Big Sandy. He's, his diary is where we found about the boat races. And uh, yeah, I remember you talking about that in the uh, genealogy presentation. Yeah, they were. This is not like the big formal. Uh, races of the big uh, sternwheel steamboats on the Mississippi River you see pictures of. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesse Hughes would take his boat to Ashland and gather up freight and passengers, then come back to Catlettsburg, pick up freight and passengers, and frequently there were other boats doing exactly the same thing. And they would yell at each other, hey, I'll race you to Pikeville. And <laughs> that would take, of course, that didn't happen in one day, as you might imagine. It took two or three days. And so it was an informal kind of thing was, well, you beat me again. I guess I'll race you back down to Catlettsburg. It was races like that. But they, it's just it, every time I pass over the interstate bridge over the big sandy, my wife and I look and say it's hard to picture two steamboats <laughs> racing up the big sandy. But it actually oh, Uh, were there any um, any stories or anything from the diaries that you read that really struck out stuck out with you or some interesting um, stories that people wrote down or anything like that? Well, uh, the, the Jesse Hughes diaries and the the boat races. The, mm-hmm. the the thing that happened was once when the steamboats were running. Mm-hmm. Is what I didn't realize was it was uh, very often in weather like we're having now where the steamboats couldn't make it up any further than Louisa. Mm-hmm. So how that would work was the steamboats would come off the Ohio, up to Catlettsburg, make it to Louisa, and they would unload everything, and they would take it up, further upriver to Hanksville or Prestonsburg or Pikeville on keelboats or flatboats mm-hmm. upriver. And uh, that, that's just something that fascinated me, that you would mm-hmm. take a flatboat and try to push it up the big sandy from Louisa to Pikeville. But it, it happened evidently uh, most years. Mm-hmm. So there were time, would be times of the year that the, uh, the, there was a steamboat designed specifically to run on the big sandy, and they were called bat wings. And they were little, small, relatively light boats that had one boiler, they had one paddle wheel on the outside that just flapped around, and they were called bat wings. Their advantage was they only drafted 11 inches of water. Oh, wow. So now your basic steamboat that's a stern wheeler like the Cricket of Jesse Hughes or those boats, they draft a little deeper, like 15 to 20 inches. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 the bat wings were also what was used around the, around the Catlettsburg uh, log rifts. Just mm-hmm. a little small, they're light, they only weigh about 50 tons, which doesn't sound light, but the, your big uh, your big steamboats that run on the Ohio and the Mississippi are 300 to 400 tons. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So these, these are little guys that are fast and very light draft that they could get up the river. But uh, mm-hmm. I think that was interesting because they were only built for the big sandy that we know of. Yeah, I'd, I'd heard of, you know, the, the bat wings before, but I didn't know they were specifically for the Big Sandy. That's really that, interesting. That's supposedly what it was. Hmm. Uh, is there anything from the book that you would like to talk about? Is there anything else well, from the book that you'd like to talk well, about? Well, I said I think the other interesting part that I think some of your uh, your uh, readers and 
listeners will be interested in is how important the river and the boats were during the Civil War. Uh, in trying to move troops and freight, it was very difficult to go overland, uh, let's say from Tattlesburg to Louisa or Louisa on up river. And so by far the best way was to move it on boat. And both sides, Union and Confederate, used them. Both sides tried to burn the other's boat. Mm-hmm. And uh, Colonel uh, James A. Garfield, of course, was the head of the Union regiments uh, in the area, and he was later the U.S. president. Mm-hmm. But uh, your uh, readers and listeners need to remember that there was a Union fort at Louisa called Fort Bishop. Uh-huh. And, and we've got a, one of those metal um, plaques that you see around about James Garfield down at the uh, courthouse, too. Right. Well, Garfield took command of one of the boats. He was he was trying to get supplies and food to his outpost at Pikeville, and uh, there was a terrible run on the river, and the boat captains wouldn't go. So Garfield, it doesn't say he put a gun to the captain's head, but that's <laughs> what it was. He put his lieutenant in the wheelhouse with the pilot and said, we are going. And after about a day of trying to get up river and darts and logs, Garfield took over the wheel of the boat and said, I'll take it from here. Oh, oh my gosh. I thought that was kind of interesting. And they made it to Pikeville and delivered their food and everything to his regiment up there. But there was also the Johnson County boat site, which was, uh, once again, the Union Army gathered up a fleet of nine push boats loaded with supplies to push up river, and they got stopped at Wireman Shoals, which I haven't found that on a map, but it's been described as being about halfway between Louisa and Prestonsburg, you think? Yeah. So uh, they pulled in, and the Confederates raided it and uh, burned most of the boats and got the supplies off of them. But that was the great uh, Wireman Hill Johnson County boat fight. So, mm. uh, But the, the, the thing is how important the river was in moving troops and moving freight during the war up and down the river. Mm-hmm. I uh, I grew up on the point section in Louisa, right between you know, the Pug and the Levanza Fork. So I've always been kind of fascinated by the river and even the bridge that's going from Louisa right. over to Fort Gay. Yep. Um, yeah, it's an interesting spot. I've seen a couple photos. I can't remember if it was in your book or someplace else. Yeah, in, uh, the back of, in the back of the Sandbars book, there's a few miscellaneous pictures we called <laughs> our photo album, and there's a 19 and 14, I think, a 1914 picture of uh, Louisa, yeah, panoramic 1914 postcard, and you can see the bridge in it, that's <laughs> in the back of the book. Yeah, there's there's one photo I saw, it's, it's of the actual point on the point section. Right. Um, and it's below where the bridge would be standing now. And it's right. just interesting, like, I'm, I'm used to seeing all these trees on the end of it. Yeah. And the photo. At this point in the interview, for some reason, the app I use to record phone interviews uh, had issues, and the audio cut out. But I asked Jack uh, if he was working on anything else at the moment. Not working on anything that's local history. Uh... Since I retired from Marshall, I retired from IBM. I had my own business for eight years. I retired from that. Was at Marshall 18 years, retired from that. <laughs> and so here I am. But I volunteer two afternoons a week at the Huntington Museum of Art. 
And what I'm doing, what they wanted me to do, is to document and write the book on the Herman Dean firearm collection. Okay. If, if any of your listeners or, uh, are interested in firearms, that, this is one of the greatest collections in the United States in private hands, and it covers 600 years of firearms. Oh, gosh. And this is held at the Huntington Museum? That's right. Oh, wow. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah, oh, most people don't. It's the mm -hmm. Herman Dean Firearms Collection, and uh, so I'm writing the book on that, and it will contain a catalog uh, that I'm also writing. And mm -hmm. so that's mainly what I'm working on. We're not working on any local history right now. Mm -hmm. Now, if any of our listeners are interested in buying some of your books, how do they go about doing that? Oh, I thought you would never ask, Caleb. Thank <laughs> you. I made sure to plug it in there. I appreciate that. They're available on Amazon, uh, or uh, they can order them directly from us, uh, a check or a money order to, to uh, K. Dickinson at 6221 Highland Drive, Huntington, 25705, and uh, we'll autograph those if they want to order them from us. Cool. Uh, you sent me a flyer for the most recent book. I'll get that posted to our web or to our Facebook page when I post this art the okay. podcast episode. So if anybody's interested, they can order it that way. Uh, um, Thank you. Yeah. Uh, if you, have, you have anything else for us? Or if you have a chance, uh, yeah. definitely read his books. They're very interesting. In the Lawrence County History book is an article titled Louisa Lock and Dam, article T28 on page 24. Work was started on the Louisa Lock and Dam at Louisa, Kentucky in 1883. 150 men were put to work at $1 per day salary. I was four years old at the time and do not remember when it was started, but do remember being taken to the site by my father to watch the men work. The bank was lined with men wanting jobs and they were really raw-hided. When these men dropped out, there was another one ready to take his place. This dam was the first needle dam built in the United States and was built completely of stone. The dam from the Kentucky side to the middle pier was weirs that could be raised and lowered. From the middle pier to the lock chamber was called needles. There were 12 by 12 cypress pieces and were put in place and pulled out with a derrick boat. There were steel frames anchored to the foundation that could be raised and lowered that held the needles in place. They had the same type of framework from the middle pier to the Kentucky side, several feet above the weirs that could be raised and lowered during high water. This was used for a walkway, and they also had a walkway across the needles, which was used by many people. The weirs was raised by the derrick boat and were thrown with the gear at the pier and bank abutment. On the Kentucky side, a trip rod was anchored into the foundation, which tripped the braces on the weirs to let them fall. This rod had to be back in place before the weirs were raised. The last time the weirs were raised to trip the rod was in a trip position, and the weirs could not be thrown. If this had been in proper position, the weirs would have tripped to prevent a lot of damage. That caused the big washout back in the early 1900s. The Big Sandy News received a postcard picture of the dam some time ago. It showed the walkway across the dam. No one knew when the picture was taken, but it was before 1908. When the dam was raised, the walkway was done away with. There was a paved road from the end of Lock Avenue to the river, which was paved with stone. Also, a ford across the river that many people used for horseback riders and wagons. 
Its road was washed away when the dam was put out of commission. On November 13, 1896, T.J. Snyder and James Pig were appointed lock tenders. On January 1, 1897, the lock and dam were completed. Many boats traveled the Big Sandy, some very large, and would travel as far as Pikeville, Kentucky. In dry weather, the river would get very low and boats could not get through the lock chamber. In 1908, they raised the dam four feet to give more crests to get through the lock chamber. Folks have wondered how the west side of Louisa got the name Italy. The stonework on the lock and dam was done by Italians who came there to work on it. They set up camp on the west side of town, which is now called Italy. To get there, they had to cross Town Branch, which was salt water flowing from a gas well on the H.C. Salmon's property. Billy Wilson, who is my father's brother, started calling it Italy and has been called that to this day. I've spent many happy days fishing at this dam and have hooked some big ones that I could not land. When this dam is completed, it will be the best fishing place in the state. I hope I will not be too old to go fishing. I am only 90 years young now. Fishing has always been my hobby. This was originally written in August 1979 by Claude T. Wilson, and the full article was submitted to the Lawrence County History Book by Betty Lou Ball. Also in the Lawrence County History Book is an article from the Tribe River Advisor titled, Historic Bridge Was Sadly Out of Date, article T29 on page 24. The bridge connecting Fort Gay and Louisa is a wide modern structure that residents on both sides of the river are proud of but it replaced a narrow, dangerous span that was built for horses and buggies and was sadly out of date the last few decades of its existence. When the old bridge was built and opened to traffic in 1906, it was an engineering marvel and a boon to commerce between the two communities it served. Before construction of the bridge, persons going from Cassville, Fort Gay's original name, to Louisa, or vice versa, either used a ferry, their own boats, or waited when the rivers were shallow. Construction of a bridge undoubtedly was discussed thousands of times during the late 1800s, and an item in the December 16, 1886 issue of the Big Sandy News mentioned that we hear some talk of a bridge being built between Louisa and Cassville, West Virginia. Nothing came of that talk until 1904, however, when it was announced in the Big Sandy News that the Louisa and Fort Gay Bridge Company had been organized and stock was being sold. The following March, bids for construction of the span were opened and contracts were awarded to the West Virginia Bridge Company for the superstructure and T.H. Roberts for the piers. The bridge was officially opened to the public at 4 p.m. Wednesday, June 27, 1906, with Flem McHenry as bridge keeper. A Louisa dentist has the distinction of being born on the Louisa Fort Gay Bridge. Dr. John N. Ryan, who is married to the former Valeria Roberts, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. George Roberts of Louisa, formerly of Fort Gay, was born October 24, 1918, in a two-story toll house on the point section at the middle of the bridge. His mother, Mrs. Mary Waldeck Ryan, made her home with her parents, the late Mr. and Mrs. John A. Waldeck. Mrs. Ryan and her father were employed as toll collectors. The bridge was about a dozen years old at the time of Dr. Ryan's birth. His father, C.C. Ryan, was an employee of the C&O Railroad Company. The toll house was built adjacent to the bridge across the Point Section Road from the later, much smaller toll house that was built later. The older one was built with the top floor level with the bridge. It was removed during the early 1940s when the bridge's wooden floor was replaced with a steel deck. Dr. Ryan lived in the toll house for about 10 years 
during which time he saw an airplane fly under the bridge and a truck fall through the bridge floor. An Army aviator by the name of Major John Woods flew under the bridge in a biplane on the Lavazza side in 1925 or 26. He made it safely under the bridge but narrowly missed power lines strung across the river downstream. A year or two later, young John and his grandfather were at the toll house when a large truck began falling through the bridge floor directly in front of the toll house. It was a chain-driven truck delivering groceries to the Louisa A&P store. The rear of the vehicle fell all the way through the bridge to the ground, but the front wheels and part of the cab remained on top. The driver and his helper jumped clear and were not hurt, Dr. Ryan recalled. The bridge reportedly was featured in Robert Ripley's Believe It or Not, syndicated to hundreds of newspapers around the world. The span was considered unique because it crossed two rivers, connected two states, two counties, and two towns, and had three exit entrances. The bridge was privately owned and tolls were charged at the rate of three cents each for pedestrians, two cents to go to or from the point section, and 15 cents for a car or driver plus three cents for each passenger. There were repeated attempts by various groups in the three communities, Fort Gay, Louisa, and Point Section, to get the states of Kentucky and West Virginia to buy the bridge and remove the tolls, but they were always unsuccessful. Finally, when Louis B. Nunn was campaigning for governor of Kentucky in 1966, he pledged that if elected, he would free the bridge. Nunn was elected, and some two years after taking office, he announced that a new bridge would be built, connecting Louisa and the Point Section, about 100 yards upstream from the toll bridge. The plans for the new bridge were dormant for several months, and then the owners of the toll bridge announced that if a free structure were built, they would close their span to all traffic, meaning that traffic could move from Louisa to the point section, but not to and from Fort Gay. The company in the two states then began negotiations, and in September 1971, it was announced that Kentucky and West Virginia were buying the bridge for $350,000, with West Virginia contributing $100,000 on the purchase price. On Thursday, September 30th, 1971, Governors Nunn of Kentucky and Arch A. Moore Jr. of West Virginia crossed the bridge from Louisa to Fort Gay, paid their tolls, turned at Fort Gay High School in front of a cheering crowd of students and citizens, came back to the toll house, paid the final tolls to be collected, and got out of the car for a round of handshaking and pictures taken at the toll house. Ceremonies before a large crowd on Madison Street at the end of the bridge in Louisa marked the official purchase of the bridge and the removal of the tolls. On the speaker's stand with the governors and highway commissioners of both states were Mayors J.R. Hall of Fort Gay and Howard Queen of Louisa, Dr. James Vaughn of Louisa, Master of Ceremonies, Mrs. Curleen Rice, an officer of the Bridge Company, J. Lynn C., a leader of the citizens group active in getting the bridge freed, the Reverend Bobby Osborne, pastor of the Fort Gay Louisa Methodist Church, and the Reverend Lowell Langfield, pastor of the Louisa United Methodist Church. I grew up on the point section in Louisa, and I never really thought anything weird about the bridge that connected uh, the point section. Um, for those of you that aren't aware, the bridge has a turn in the middle of it. So it goes from Louisa, Kentucky to Fort Gay, West Virginia, and halfway across the bridge, you can turn to the right and go to the point section. Uh, it's part of Lawrence County, just outside of city limits. I was talking to one of my friends when I was in college and they asked me how to get to my house and I said oh you get on the bridge to Fort Gay and you turn right in the middle of it 
and they thought I was joking. So apparently bridges with right turns in the middle of it are kind of rare. Our bridge was actually featured on an episode of Ripley's Believe It or Not a long, long time ago. Uh, it's because it connects two counties, two states, crosses two rivers, has a right turn in it. I think that's all the specifics of it, just because it's such a unique bridge. One of the items that we have in our collection is a white binder titled Louisa Fort Gay Bridge. This binder was donated to us by Jalen C., who was the president of the Louisa Fort Gay Bridge Action Group. Uh, this is the group that helped get the current bridge that we have built um, back in the 70s and 80s. The bridge that was there before was deemed unsafe, and they kind of headlined the project. And the, the binder has a lot of correspondences between Mr. C and the committee and various uh, elected officials in the area. Um, Governor R.J. Moore from West Virginia is in there. Uh, Ken Heckler, he was a uh, representative and later Secretary of State for West Virginia. And even uh, our governor here in Kentucky at the time, Wendell H. Ford. Uh, it's really interesting to get that kind of insight into it why they wanted to get this bridge built, why it was so important to the community. Um, it's just a really cool local piece of history that we have. The Louisa Fort Gay Bridge Action Group was made up of local people from here in Louisa and Lawrence County. The president was Jay Lynn C., the Louisa Carpet Mills plant manager. Vice chairman was Olive West, a retired principal. Secretary was Mary Ann McNabb, a secretary bookkeeper. And the treasurer was Todd M. Ward, attorney at law, who I'm distantly related to. Ron Quazala was a radio broadcaster. William H. Jackson, attorney at law. Walt Whitaker, hospital administrator. Gail S. Taylor, cashier. Beulah Green, treasurer for the Junior Women's Club. Dr. William J. McNabb, general practitioner. Joanne Stansberry, deputy circuit court clerk. Herbert E. Myers, assistant county judge. Keith Spears, a radio station manager, Robert Jack Copley, an electrician, Elsie New, a retired teacher, Dudley Billups, a retired principal, Ray Aliff, a hardware dealer, Grace Thompson, a retired teacher, Ed Kearns, a mortician, Jack Schaefer, a school community coordinator, Wilbur Meredith, a gas station owner, and Dan Watts, a newspaper editor. And that just shows how important this project was to the community at the time. We had people from all different kinds of industries trying to get this bridge built. If you're ever interested in coming in and taking a look at the uh, letters for the Louis IV Gay Bridge Project, feel free to. Uh, we have them on the shelves in our genealogy collection. Um, it's in a plain white binder. The spine of it says Louis IV Gay Bridge. Uh, it doesn't have a call number or anything like that. It's just a small collection that we have um, and you know just like any of our stuff in genealogy feel free to come in whenever you want to and take a look at it we're open regular hours now uh, nine to five uh, you don't have to make an appointment or anything like that to go to the genealogy room it's completely open to the public all right with that I will bring this episode to a close hopefully everybody enjoyed it um, if anybody has any questions or 
they want me to research any certain topics, like I said, feel free to email me, uh, Caleb at lcplky.org, or you can give us a call, uh, 606-638-4497. We have a lot of stuff going on this summer, so keep an eye on our Facebook page and our website, or you can stop in at the library and pick up a programming calendar. Um, I've got one for my stuff. Dina has one for her you know, kids and team programming. So, yeah, hopefully we see you at the library. Um, we are open regular hours now, 9 to 5. But I guess that's about it for me for today. Uh, have a great day.